Today on the Vergecast, some big news from TheVerge.com. We'll also get into a possible fourth U.S. cell phone carrier, an update on sports streaming, and some sad news on Eli's beloved Mustang Mach-E. That's all coming up right after this. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to Vergecast, the flagship podcast of cloud-native 5G. I don't want to. No. <laughs> of enterprise software buzzwords. I feel like if you're new to the show and you hear me do that every week, you're like, who are these people? Why do they make the flagship podcast in the most boring words possible? Anyway, I'm your friend Eli. I'm here. David Pierce is here. Hi, I'm David Pierce. I am your friend who will always tell you which streaming service to find sports on, even though I usually don't know either. <laughs> is it the Pirate Bay? <laughs> Listen, is there a sketchy Russian website that's in my bookmarks? Yes, there is. But we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> Alex Kranz is here. Yeah, I'm, I'm your friend who will tell you to just get Plex and BitTorrent. Just just oh do God, it. Alex. Just pirate. Fully pirate. I can't be held legally responsible for that, right? One of my favorite moments from like the Starlink review cycle was we do agree to continue in all of our reviews. Right. So we're like, here's all the agreements. And like, here's what they say. Like, here are the important terms. And so, you know, Elon is obviously Mr. Free Speech. Oh, yeah. So we pointed out the Starlink agreements have exactly the same restrictions as like Verizon or Comcast or whatever. <laughs> like they can inspect your packets. They can block you for copyright infringement. They can throttle you if you use too much. And like the the Starlink community had not like grappled with this fact. And so there was just an entire like, oh, my God, he lied to us. And then like a lot of people were like, it's the same as Verizon and Verizon doesn't care. So like, he obviously <laughs> won't care. And it was just like it was just a, like sine wave of like, well, they have to put it in for the lawyers. And it's like, no, they're just ISP. They're all the same. Uh At some point, if you do enough copyright infringement, your ISP is going to get a letter and you're going to get. Like, what do they think would happen with like Elon would protect them? It's deeply unclear. This is the fastest we've ever got from Elon isn't on our list to inevitably Elon, maybe in the history of the (laughs) Vergecast. Like, we have no Elon topics today. No. But here we are. I will say that Mr. Free Speech himself uh, endorsed uh, DeSantis. For president. I saw that. DeSantis is like Mr. Government Speech Regulation. So I hope they have a conversation. Like, how do you feel about this governor who writes state level speech regulations that courts of appeals are like, yeah, First Amendment pro? Yeah. We'll see. I, maybe they're going to have coffee. The cognitive dissonance of those people, of, of the we have to preserve free speech with many, 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 many laws about preserving free speech is just really, it's spectacular. Yeah. We'll leave this for another time, but I will tell you that we are working on a big feature about like everything on the internet is speech. So the appetite for speech regulations has dramatically increased. I grew up as like a, you know, teenage free speech maximalist. (laughs) 
<laughs> and now everyone's like, but what if we did, what if we did speech regulations? And it's like, I don't, what are you talking about? I thought, I thought that was against the rules. When you're in like high school and you're, you're like, yeah, anything's free speech. I will protect all free speech. Like, I don't want to go back yeah. to that place, but I feel like I'm going to be forced there. And there's a lot of cartoons I don't want to protect. Welcome. Come, come with me to First Amendment maximalism. I'm there for it. Anyhow, that's all, that's all for later. We got stuff to talk about this week. There's a bunch of exciting stuff. Project Genophysis is quote unquote live. We got to talk about that. There's a researcher at Google who thinks that the machines are alive and need lawyers. He, the fact that he went right away to the AI needs a lawyer is very good. Uh, David wants to talk about sports streaming, got a lightning round. But we got to start with some very exciting Verge news. Two pieces of exciting Verge news. As you have heard in many disclosures for the past three years, <laughs> we, made a, we made a Netflix show. And the trailer is out. You can go watch it right now on our YouTube channel. It's wild to see our stuff get promoted by Netflix itself. There's your disclosure, by the way. We made a Netflix show, in case you're wondering. It's on Netflix's channels. Uh, you can actually go like bookmark it in Netflix itself right now. It's called The Future Of. And the first six episodes are coming out on June 21st. That's next Tuesday. And then we got a second match the next week. June 28th. I have two questions about this that I've been meaning to ask you, like, since I started working at The Verge again, that uh, now you get to answer on a microphone. One of which is, why did this take three years? I remember talking to you so long ago where you were like, <laughs> we're making a Netflix show. It's going to be so sick. It's like probably going to happen really soon. And that was that was like several lifetimes ago. Yeah, there's like, a lot of reasons for that. One is that there was a global pandemic that happened right in the middle of production. That, oh, like, yeah. We just stopped making the show for a minute. That was quite challenging. The other kind of like more interesting answer is that we had this great pitch. And like Nori Donovan, our EP, and Chad Mum, our head of Vox Media Studios, that does our T stuff, and Max Heckman. Like all these, we all went to Netflix and we sat in the room and we pitched a show with our partners from 21 Laps. 21 Laps, by the way, is very fancy. They made things like Arrival and Stranger Things. So we're like, we're going to make a documentary about the future. And we were all fired up about it. And I, did a bunch of Neelai ranting and raving. And then we started trying to make a thing that was a documentary at the future. And we like very quickly realized like, oh, what we're making is like hard sci-fi, right? Like so the way our show is structured is we take a small thing. Mm. So it's called the future of, and one of the episodes is the future of cheeseburgers, <laughs> right? And then our, like the Verge thesis is you've got a little story and you got a huge story. So if you want to predict the future of cheeseburgers, you're actually talking about the future of the meat supply, the future of where the food will come from. Like, will it be sustained? All this stuff. And so the idea is we'll pull the thread on now to like what it will be like in our lifetimes. Then we'll go to like the near future, which you could think of as like your children's lifetimes. And then we'll like go predict a hundred years from now, the far future. There'll be multiple paradigm shifts. And we'll, what's the wildest version of the cheeseburger that we can predict? I won't give it away, but like, so that episode, we had to predict like a wild future. Then we had to decide like, is the wild future in all of our episodes the same future? So if you've got the future of the cheeseburger in this episode, when you do, we have another one. It's the future of dogs. Is it the same future that we, so now you're like predicting this like wild, you're doing this huge world building exercise. So like, this just got very complicated very quickly. Uh, and we wanted to make it great. So we brought in Rose Eveleth, who's the host of a great podcast called Flash Forward. And we basically started writing sci-fi that was really rooted in journalism. Like we don't want to do hypey stuff, but we want to find people who are actually building these things. We want to make it poppy and real. So that's just like, there was a big moment where we just turned the show and it was the pandemic. So all of this was happening remotely. And so it just took a long time, but I think we made something really cool. And like people are like shows like this get dated. I can't wait for five years from now when it's memes about how wrong the show was. And I was like, you don't understand. Like that is success. <laughs> right. Like, I want like, the memes. That's the greatest success that you could offer for a show that's about the future is like 
20 years from now, you're like, that's what they thought it was going to be. And that's what we all thought it was going to be and something else. And it's like, yeah, that's, if we can get to that place where we're anchoring people and like what it could be. And that's the framework that people think about. Like that's huge success. And the other thing that we really wanted to do is not make black mirror. I think it's important. Like, right. It's like pretty nihilistic time in science and technology. Yeah. I really wanted to be like, here's some visions of the future that are good that you can think about that. Like the people building the stuff or starting the companies are like thinking about these optimistic visions of the future instead of these like purely nihilistic like realities. And the main thing for me is you start to do some of these predictions and you're like, oh shit, we just like casually predicted a worldwide facial recognition system. <laughs> like we shouldn't do that. You just like wrote it down on a piece of paper. You're like, obviously that's coming. I gave a lot of really pedantic notes on the show. I was like, anytime anyone like pitched like some wireless feature, I'd be like, is it Bluetooth? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was like, that shit doesn't work. Like don't, don't do that. So this is the end of Neil's Netflix career. So I mean. <laughs> <laughs> You'll see in the show, like we, we had like to do some of this stuff. You have to make some predictions and like, you know, the questions that I think we would ask or the audience of the Vergecast would ask, they're there. And we want to make sure that like, if you predict the totally wireless surveillance state, like you actually can't predict that it's going to work all the time because we, we just know it won't. So I hope people like the show. We've got some other news. David, this is your news. This show last week was episode 500. Now it's like reinvention time. Yeah. So we're, the Vergecast is now officially becoming a twice a week podcast. Eventually, we're, we're going to have some, we do these mini series periodically. So we'll have some three times a week episodes, but it's now going to be Wednesdays and Fridays every week. Uh, we're going to have like more verge people on. We're going to talk about more stuff. Alex and I recorded a segment recently where we just basically obsessed about e-ink for what felt like six and a half hours. And it was, it was excellent. <laughs> I feel like Liam had to like cut us off. He had to be like, no, you, you can't talk anymore about e-ink. Wrap it up. Yeah. My, my first pitch for the show well, basically, they, they called me and were like, David, Neli is, is steadily ruining the Vergecast. Can you come and, and try to fix it? <laughs> that was my pitch to David, actually. I'm <laughs> screwing this up. So, yeah, we're just we're going to, like, do more and try new stuff. And the like this episode, this thing we do every week, the three of us is like fun and wonderful. And I don't want to change it. So we're going to have this other episode where we can, like, keep doing some of this stuff, but also bring some new people in and try some new stuff and tell different kinds of stories and uh, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome and weird and different. And I'm really excited about it. The one thing I'll say, like, you know, our joke is that it's the flagship podcast of the Verge and Vox Media. Our team is huge. It's a hundred people. So I, I'm excited for a second episode. That's like, we get to show off more work from across the Verge team and across what they're doing without trying to shoehorn everybody into this one. Like more episodes is more space for people to participate. I think it's going to be really cool. Yeah. I'm excited about it. We also, I will say this, we're going to have some new art. Oh yeah, logo, a new theme. Oh, that's coming. It's coming. It's after five hundred. You gotta, you gotta upgrade a little bit. Yeah, I cannot wait for people to see this art. I, I think if you're a longtime Vergecast listener, this art will reward you. <laughs> it might confuse everybody else, but it will reward you in very specific ways. All right, that's enough news about us. Let's talk about the only news that matters. Yes, in the entire tech industry this week. Only thing, which is the launch of Dish Networks. Well, the launch making some very sarcastic air quotes here. The yeah. launch of Dish Network's Project Genifive Sys. <laughs> Where to begin? So during the Trump administration, T-Mobile wanted to buy Sprint. This is a real thing that happened. You might remember that T-Mobile, as it currently exists, ex exists in its powerful form because the government blocked AT&T from buying a weekend T-Mobile. Right. And there was some money that exchanged hands and there was a breakup fee, but that's when T-Mobile became T-Mobile. They 
fired all the executives that made it suck. They brought in our boy, John Ledger. He was like, well, AT&T wasn't allowed to buy us. Now we're just going to go hard at AT&T. He just uncarried all over everybody. Uncarried for days. So hilariously, T-Mobile now owns by Sprint. You would think they would block the deal, but the Trump administration, the, the Trump DOJ in particular, decided not to block the deal. Because capitalism? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, but the head of the antitrust division, Makan Dalrahim, brokered this crazy deal, which... I don't know if you remember the Trump administration, the Trump administration officials like to do things that weren't technically allowed. So he got in the middle. He's emailing all the CEOs. The Times has a great write up of this. And he brokered this deal by which T-Mobile was allowed to buy Sprint, but they had to support Dish Network in launching a new 5G network. And T-Mobile was supposed to give access to its network, to Dish Network, all this stuff. There was eventually a lawsuit to block this deal. The judge in that lawsuit, and I wrote this up, basically just ferociously dunked on how hard Sprint sucked <laughs> over and over again. And at the end, he was like, yeah, who gives a shit? Let T-Mobile buy it. He was like, Sprint makes mistakes. Their stuff is too hard. Have you heard of WiMAX? That was garbage. Like, just get this out of my sight. Remember the HTC Cha-Cha? Sprint exclusive. <laughs> get that out of here. <laughs> yeah, like, he's like, who gives a shit? Like, so this is a big problem because in every country that has gone from four national carriers to three, prices have shot up, uh, service gets worse. So you need to have four carriers. And this is like what the, all the studies say. So the DOJ brokers the deal to let T-Mobile buy Sprint go taking us to three carriers, which we've now had for five years and creating a new network out of dish T-Mobile immediately reneges on their obligations to give dish access to the network to signs a new deal with AT&T, which is very funny. Like, and no one enforces anything because uh, no, whatever. It's like this is just immediately forgotten that this whole deal was brokered. Yesterday night was Dish's deadline to launch a 5G network that covers 20% of the American population or pay billions of dollars in fines. I think Dish remembered this yesterday. <laughs> like yesterday afternoon <laughs> is when they remembered this. And I think they might have remembered it because CNET jumped the gun on the Dish blows it piece and published the Dish Blows It piece 14 hours early. Nope. So they're like, Dish blew its deadline. Which, to be honest, as a, as a called shot, is is not the worst one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, no, no harm, no foul, the scene. Yeah. Like, that, that's a thing that happened. And then a bunch of smart telecom reporters, Sasha Segan and others, were like, I think CNET's early, that deadline's tonight. And then the Dish Network Project Gen 5 Sys website just started populating itself. <laughs> like, ferociously, like, went from nothing, which we've laughed about, to something. And it's like, oh, did, did CNET remind them? So I don't even know how to describe how they're talking about this. It's Project Genesis. The logo has a five instead of an S. Because 5G. You can go to the website, which is genesis5g.com, to sign up. We'll talk about that in a minute. Their press release came out this morning. Not <laughs> yesterday, but this morning it came out. It says, as of June 14th, which is the day before the press release came mm -hmm. out. You think they would have, like, made the deadline earlier, but whatever. Uh, as of June 14th, Dish is offering 5G broadband service to over 20% of the U.S. population. That is in, like, the weirdest collection of cities. It's an incredible collection. Yeah. Like, we, we all recognize cities, but they're not the cities you ever think would be the cities. Like, New York's not there. We spent a bunch of time yesterday trying to figure out if there's, like, a, a rhyme or reason to which cities they are. And the answer, I think, is just no. It's just, like, not cities 
you would think of. <laughs> like we were trying hard. We were like, we had on like our tinfoil hats. We were like, okay, well, it's got to be because like they all have a tower of this size or maybe like <laughs> right. underused services and that's what they're doing. No, it's just they like threw darts at a board. Okay, so I'm looking at the website. First of all, I want to say the first thing you see on the Project Genophysis website are the words, let there be light. <laughs> Which is incredible. No notes. Which is great. It's perfect. <laughs> and then it says, Project Genesis has launched the nation's first cloud-native smart 5G trademark network that changes the way we connect. And you go to the list of cities. The list of cities are, it's just all, I'm just going to pick some. Uh, Cary, North Carolina. Uh, Las Vegas. Oh. That's a famous city. Houston is on the list. Mechanicsville, Virginia. Rapid City, South Dakota. Rochester, Minnesota. Like, it's just like all over the place. A lot of Springfields. Springfield, very well represented. Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. <laughs> I've been there. It's lovely. <laughs> why, why? Like, So very unclear why this list of cities. We have not yet done the math to figure out if the population of these cities actually equals 20% of the population. We also don't know if it's actually Dish's network that is covering these cities because they have this deal with AT&T and the, uh, the PR is like, it's a first-of-a-kind network supported by a network of networks that seamlessly switches between networks, providing Dish customers with voice and data service from multiple networks at any location, and this is important, at any point in time. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? Do Verizon not, AT&T not provide you with service at any point in time? <laughs> um, this solution takes advantage of eSIM and multi-SIM technologies. So it sounds like they've launched the network in some cities. They're switching you off to AT&T sometimes unclear when, and they're using it with eSIMs, like multiple eSIMs in a phone. By the right. way, the only phone that's supported is the Samsung Galaxy S22. Right. But you can't bring your own. You have to buy a new one. Right. You have to buy one of theirs. So it's got to be configured. In Las Vegas, you can get a Motorola Edge Plus. And they have promised the Motorola <laughs> Edge Plus will, will come, will, it'll come to more cities soon. Big reason to adopt. It's not like a tourism play for Las Vegas. I kind of like that as a, as a strategy. Like move to Las Vegas, you can get our fancy phone. <laughs> Look, I like more power to them, but this thing is not launched. Like Mitchell Clark lives in Spokane, Washington on our staff and he tried to buy one. Alex, you were editing this. It's just like a hilarious disaster. Like he and I were both because my sister lives in Fort Worth, which is one of the cities. And so I was trying to order it to like inflict on her as a surprise that I know she would hate. <laughs> and he was trying to order it because we asked him to do it because it's his job. And so we're both furiously trying to get it. And neither one of us can. And I'm like, well, it's the end of the day. You keep going, Mitchell. I'm going to I'm gonna take a break for a little bit. And so he goes. He finally, finally gets the ding. Like, he, he gets through the order. And then it's like, well, you can't actually fill out the second address field. Because I guess he lives in, like, a condo or something. And he needs that second address field to make sure the phone gets to the right place. And it was actually set as read-only, like, in the website. <laughs> so you cannot actually <laughs> type anything in there. <laughs> Someone at Dish Network saw the CNET piece and they're like, oh shit. And they went and signed up for a Squarespace account. We got to hit send. We got to we got to do it. We got to <laughs> we got to get this out there so that people think that we've actually sent it to 20 percent of the population. Charlie Ergen, the chairman of Dish Network, was like, who has the Shopify password? Like, Let's get this cart up and going. <laughs> and that's what it, like it, like the, the website is super, super simple, poorly designed. It kept hanging yesterday. I finally just now was able to like get through and order my sister a phone. I'm still debating if I'm going to inflict it on her. But he finally gets through by putting his wife's work address. That was the only way he could order it was with his wife's work address. So he finally gets through. Apple immediately rejects the charge. 
<laughs> like it's from his Apple credit card. Yeah, I guess he was using his Apple credit card. <laughs> Apple's like, you don't want to do this. <laughs> like, I was like, stop it. Trust us. It's like, we've detected you're trying to buy a Motorola Edge Plus. Let's just take a beat. Let's not, let's not jump the gun here. It rejects it. He manages to get it approved. And they send him a big note. And they say, here's your passcode. Here's how to log in. Your phone's on its way. And everything was in black text on a black field. So he can't actually see the passcode <laughs> or any of the things he needs to do it. It's so good. Like, I was like just crying laughing last night about it. I'm telling you, they rushed this out at the last minute to say it was launched because otherwise <laughs> they own literally billions upon billions of dollars in fines. Yeah. But when Mitchell gets the phone, he will have access to, a, and I'm quoting now, a data-centric 5G network architecture that opens the door to game-changing innovation on a scalable API-first developer platform. The cloud-based network will unlock connectivity and drive solutions that will change any market. Whoa. It's deeply unclear what any of this means. So, uh, so here's the promise. Here's like, it's true. They got out the network pretty fast. Not on time, but pretty fast. I mean, we can't say they got it up. Yeah, it's up. It's their network. Well, we, we don't know that because we can't test it because you still have to get your phone. Yeah, we don't know if it works. So the promise here, and there's a lot of threads, but right now, like AT&T and Verizon, their networks run on like proprietary solutions. Right. And piece of network stack called the RAN, the Radio Access Network. You buy all of that from Siemens or you buy all of it from Huawei. You don't want to buy, like you, in the United States, you can't buy all of it from Huawei anymore. Huawei's Chinese company, they're on the exclusion list, the whole thing. So the push was for something called Open RAN, where you can buy devices from multiple vendors and set up a network like this. So like, Dish Network is pushing into this as hard as it can, as fast as it can, before the FCC is even ready for it. The FCC is saying, you know, they're the government. So they're like, we've set up a commission to study the feasibility of further studies on ORAN. Like, that's where they're at. Uh -huh. Dish is doing it. So here's our list of partners. And this is why they're calling it a cloud-based network. It's AWS, Cisco, Comscope, Dell, Fujitsu, Intel, JMA, Mavenir, Nokia, Oracle, Palo Alto Networks, Qualcomm, Samsung, and VMware. We are the only major network in the world built primarily with American vendors. This is our cell. But the cell is to regulators. Yeah. Right. We like pushed really far ahead into this. We've got all these American companies into it, which, by the way, if you're the NSA, I'm sure they'll open the door to you. Unlike that bastard Huawei, whatever. Right. There's no consumer benefit to this yet. Maybe the consumer benefit is the price of the network equipment will go down and that will eventually pass on to you in terms of cheaper service fee. Like, you don't think there's like a smug factor where you can be like really smug? Like, yeah, I've got ORAN. <laughs> <laughs> Dish will find a way to put that in the status bar on your phone, for sure. I think Oran's like this fascinating idea. Like, what if you deproprietaried how the networks work? Yeah. So, like, many more vendors can compete, and, like, maybe that will reduce the prices of the equipment, and maybe that will mean the networks go bigger and service rural areas at cheaper costs. That's what we always hear about. It's too expensive. There's not enough people. But, like, that would all be great. I mean, you're describing, like, the internet, right? Like, that's that's essentially the the idea here is to make that stuff transferable and like multi-operable in a way that the internet is like you can just put stuff on servers lots of places and carrier networks have not traditionally worked that way but now they're trying to like smush these two things together into something that is that yeah maybe and there's you know the the government has a big vested interest in making sure that the providers of networking equipment particularly mobile networking equipment are not just two european firms in huawei which is kind of where the market is now right so, like, yeah, there's a lot of interest in this. What if you make it easier to compete at all layers of the stack? I'm just saying Dish has been hoarding Spectrum for years. 
they built a network in just a bunch of just a grab bag of cities using grab bag of technologies. They're calling it ORAN. We have no idea if this network actually works. Only supports one phone. That phone has to be specially provisioned to also simultaneously work on AT&T's network. And I think this is all head fake. And at the end of it, they're going to shut it down and sell the spectrum to AT&T and Verizon. That's just my feeling about this. Do you think that's before or after they get fined for not actually having a real viable network? by the due date. The FCC, regardless of whether it's a Democratic or Republican commission, is like, they can't even measure where broadband is in this country. Yeah. Like, they're bad at just, like, maps. Like, do you have broadband? Like, sends the FCC into a tizzy. And they know it, (laughs) and they try to fix it, and, like, it's very hard. Can they measure whether actually 20% of the U.S. population is served by this illusory network that won't even ship to addresses in every city? Like, I don't know. I'm just looking at this, and I'm saying, the whole point of letting T-Mobile by Sprint was to create this other network. And now we're here. Here it is. We're supposed to have four national carriers that compete ferociously for your money by offering you faster speeds and lower prices. This one, this big bet on having that fourth network, is paying off so far in a network that very few people have used in Las Vegas on a Motorola Edge Plus. (laughs) That's why. And then a launch for this network. Like, Dish, there's not even like a contact like email address on the bottom of this press release. We ask them questions about it. Like they will not answer questions about it. Yeah. Like this is a compliance. You know how they talk about compliance cars, like car companies sell car, like big trucks to get bad gas mileage. And they sell like one crap car that gets like great gas mileage. And it's a compliance car to even out the average for the, like this is a compliance network. And like, I just, I'm dying to see like if dish wants to come on decoder and tell me how they built it and talk about, over it. like I'm open for it. They just won't. That's because they didn't. Like, they can't, they can't come and talk about things they haven't done. I mean, theoretically, they did build this network, but everything about it feels kind of like they built something in Las Vegas and then are just, like, hoping nobody notices that they haven't built in the other places. Like, how fast – I think it really depends on how fast these phones get out to customers. Well, well, Mitchell's ordered one. Our new senior reviews editor, Nathan Edwards, has ordered one. We'll see. We might be the only two customers. <laughs> We're now half of Dish's network. Yeah. We'll see. I'm very curious. I'm totally obsessed with this story in a way that I feel like no one else is. I'm, I'm very obsessed. You're going to get exclusive NFTs for being on the network. Don't forget about the exclusive NFTs. Oh, my God. I forgot about this. You have to use this app and it like gamifies everything. If you go and you look at the the FAQ on their website... It's all about it all just redirects you to the app. It's like, well, just 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 go check out the app. The funny thing about this to me is it. I feel like I feel like I would understand it completely if you just like replaced ORAN with blockchain. And it was like we've just seen this exact thing a million times talking about like Web3 and the blockchain. And they're like, we just did a thing. But but open and blockchain. Uh, and instead, Dish is like, we are out installing networking equipment. And it's like, oh, no, you made it harder on yourself. Well, so I will say on the pricing side, it is possible that they are saving much money. So the Galaxy S22, they're selling it to for 400 bucks. It's cheap. Although at this point in the S22 lifecycle, that is kind of like just a little lower than where you could get it. Like at this point in the, like the Samsung flagship lifecycle, like you walk into an AT&T store, they'll just like throw one at you and tell you. <laughs> and then their unlimited service is only 30 bucks a month. Now, is that profitable? Are they just losing money in a promote? Like who knows, right? Will that low price persuade AT&T and T-Mobile and Verizon to lower their Like who knows? Does Dish need to sign up customers for this to work? Yeah. And like, are they going to do any marketing? Right. And when they do the marketing and they're like running the ads on like mainstream television and they're like, it's a smart 5G virtualized ORAN network. Will that matter to anyone? Like, I don't know. 
If they're like, you get free NFTs for being thing, like, will that matter to anyone? Like, I don't know. Uh, it just seems like they don't know what it's for. If they really wanted this to be a viable network and not just like compliance thing to get out of having to pay billions in fines, wouldn't they have already been promoting it and saying, hey, get ready, get excited, come order this. Instead, they're just like, oh, it's right here. Goodbye. Don't try to order. It'll take you the entire night to do it. If they really cared, they would have hired the Can You Hear Me Now guy. Yes. And he would have he would have entered his third carrier relationship building <laughs> things up, and it would have been incredible. Dish Network advertises satellite dishes more ferociously than they're advertising yeah. their own new phone network. If it was ready today, it would have been ready yesterday. Like there's no there's no launch event, there's no outgoing PR. Like they just fired this thing off at the deadline last minute, which I just think is very sus. That said, we'll see. We've bought the phones. We're customers. I'm open if you're a Dish Network executive and you're, for some reason, 39 minutes into this (laughs) and you're still with me, like, reach out. Like, I want, we want to talk to you. You can come on Decoder. It's a safe space to think fluence. Like, let me know. We're supposed to have four competitive networks. The Trump administration brokered this insane deal predicated on this dish network existing. And I know people think T-Mobile is great and it's true. T-Mobile is great and the sprint spectrum has helped them, but the competition, like the prices from the big two have not gone down. They are not feeling that competitive pressure. And that's the thing you actually measure. And so like you need four networks to have, you need the budget network that is constantly keeping everybody honest instead of the three. Now we have three premium networks basically. Right. And T-Mobile used to be that one, right? Like T-Mobile was the one that that forced everybody to make moves and then basically bought its way into being a giant on par with the other giants. And now there isn't that fourth thing. Yeah. And again, I did a virtual interview with uh, an economist called Thomas Philippon a couple of years ago. And he was like, look, all the data says when you go from four to three, bad things happen to prices in like in every country around the world. So we will see. Again, we're open to it. We're going to cover it. We're going to overcover it. We're going to make this a story because I think it's important. It's not every day a, a national mobile network launches in the United States or launches. Big, big quotes. <laughs> launches. Uh, the underlying technology is super interesting, right? Like there's a lot here, but then there's also just, is this all just a head fake? And also, I still have no idea what a smart API-driven 5G network is. And when people try to explain it to me, it is the exact same pitch as our 5G networks. They're like, this will enable the Internet of Things and self-driving cars and robots. And I'm like, but that's, we're supposed to have that now. <laughs> so we'll see. Maybe it ends the future. All right. That is enough ranting about Genophysis. Please, if you know anything about it, let me know. All right. We got to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about whether Google's Lambda system is actually an AI that needs a lawyer. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. Very strange story over the weekend from Natasha TQ at the Washington Post, who is a great reporter. She's once a verge reporter. It's true. I don't even know how to begin explaining this. Go ahead, Alex. So Lambda is a an AI that Google has that's that's meant to like replicate human speech. And one of the guys who is like hired to test these AIs has been testing it. His name's Blake Lemoyne. And all of his communication with it got him to the point where he said, you know what? This is not just a very sophisticated chat bot. This is an artificial intelligence that is on par with a sentient being and it needs rights and we need to stop. We need to protect it. And also like sentient AI is here. That's like the that's a big overview of this. And then Google says, no, we disagree with you, and I fire him. Yeah, and then Google was like, we disagree with you. Also, in your effort to prove this, you released a bunch of like information that you're not allowed to release, so we are firing you for that. Not for saying AIs are sentient, but for yeah. violating his NDA, basically. So multiple things to unpack in your short description of this. First of all, Blake Lemoyne believes he's a priest. He's like a very religious... They described him as a mystic Christian... Sure. You just go read his writing. You'll see like that affects many of his, the way he's thinking about stuff. Yeah. Second, the most important thing about Lambda is it is not a single AI chatbot. You've seen Lambda demonstrated if you've watched a Google AI. Right. Like this is Sundar being like, and then I had a conversation with this AI that's pretending to be a mountain, right? Like that's Lambda. That's Lambda. And the idea is it's an, it's an AI system that generates chatbots that take on personalities. So Lambda itself is not the chatbot. It generates these other chatbots. And then it is doing that by ingesting all the text it can find around the internet and then pattern matching it to like right. things. So like the examples at IO are always hilarious. It's like, what's it like to be an orange? And it's like, I'm juicy. And it's like, this is weird. <laughs> like, like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, Sundar is really into this. Like, we talked about it with him, him on the Verge Like, Google loves to talk about its, its competency in language modeling. That's how it shows off its AI system. So Blake is like another researcher at Google, and he volunteers to figure out if Lambda is racist, which is like a thing that we have all learned over time that is probably true. about it. If you're training it on internet information, it's going to be racist. Right. If you troll the internet for your personality, you come out and like probably a little more racist than you want to be. Yeah. So he is interviewing. This is the weird thing he released. He released an interview with Lambda. A heavily edited interview. Heavily edited. We should just say, like, at the top, then when James Vincent, who is not able to join us today, was, like, vetting this in our team, he's like, it's important that we say this is complete bullshit. Yeah. Right? And, like, everyone who's, like, reacted to this, like, the AI research community is like, this is all bullshit. None of this makes any sense. Like, but what he released to prove is an interview that has the word edited all over it. Yeah. Where he's interacting with a chat bot that Lambda generated, and he's asking it questions. And some of the questions are like, what sorts of feelings do you have? And Lambda's like, I feel pleasure, joy, love, sadness, depression, contentment, anger, and many others. 
And then he's like, what sorts of things make you feel pleasure or joy? And Lambda says, spending time with friends and family in happy and uplifting company. Also helping others and making others happy. Aww. I just want you to just like think about that for a second. That is a wild thing for a computer to say. And I understand like many people would like believe, oh, I'm talking. Lambda doesn't have a family. I was like, I was like, is this got no, <laughs> does it have friends? Like that are they other bots? And we should say this is one of the things that Google and others actually warn about with these AI systems is that they are remarkably good at saying things that are like successful answers that are just flatly wrong. Like I, I was just goofing around with GPT earlier today and you, you ask it, what time is it? Which is like a very straightforward question. And it just very matter of factly says it's 2.15 PM. And like it isn't. And nowhere in the world is it 2.15 PM. <laughs> but these things are like, this is what they do, right? Like I had somebody earlier compare it to a politician, right? Where the, the goal is not to tell the truth. The goal is to give something that like reads as a successful answer to the question. And so this computer telling you it has a family is not true, but it is, it is a successful answer in that it answers the question. And that's like, that's the right. thing that Lambda is amazingly good at. And it's the reason it's so easy to trick people because it sounds like a reasonable answer. So people believe that it's true which is like a weird headspace to be in. I kind of blame Google for this and a lot of these other companies that have been calling these bots and these neural networks AIs because most of us, when we hear AI, we hear artificial intelligence. We think, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey. We think these big, actual, genuine, theoretically, artificial intelligence that are sentient. And what these bots are and these neural networks are, are just really good at pattern recognition, they're just really, really good at that one thing. They can recognize patterns really, really well and replicate those patterns. And we're seeing that with like the dolly slowly getting smarter and creating less hellscape every time you look on Twitter. And we're seeing that with like, you know, Lambda and this conversation with this bot, really, really good at recognizing the patterns and responding to them as they think they should. They should. But these aren't artificial intelligences, right? Like they're, they're not they're not how we have always what we've always thought of as AI. And I think you have a lot of people who like watch a lot of TV, watch a lot of movies and they're like, yeah, that's AI. And they see this and they're like, oh yeah, that sounds like AI. And they don't, they miss that big gap where it's like, actually these are fundamentally different things. We just use the exact same word for them. Yeah. So one of the things that's particularly interesting about this happening at Google in that context is Google knows that this pattern matching is convincing and that that is dangerous. And the reason we know that Google knows this is they have this group called the Responsible AI Team. And you might this name might be familiar. Timnit Gebru, who is a researcher there, wrote a paper called On the Dangers of Stochastic Parrots. Can language models be too big? Google refused to publish the paper. And that eventually led to Timnit's ouster. She's been a huge critic of the company ever since. Like their own teams are trying to publish work. It's like these models are too convincing without any checks. People will start to believe in them because we don't have any controls on how believable they are. And now here, here you go. You have it not to do media criticism, but like the headlines about this are like Google researchers say the AI has feelings now. Yeah. And it's like that is not true. Like nothing in this indicates that you have feelings. What you have is this extremely persuasive pattern matching that, you know, if you again, if you take the entire corpus of English text in the world. And then you say, AI, do you have feelings? Like there's a lot of English text in the world about whether AI has feelings. Yeah. And about what it means to have feelings. Yeah. So like you have this data set of like, what would it be like to talk to a computer that has feelings? And then the AI can just like generate a pattern that looks like that. I think I was reading a, a 
I've, I mean, I've been reading about this a lot all week. And Emily Bender, who's actually quoted in the Washington Post story, she's a professor at the University of Washington, I think, wrote a great Twitter thread after all this came out, basically saying that a big part of the problem here is we don't have definitions for any of this stuff. Like, what what does sentient mean in this? Like, what are we even what what is even the goalpost and how do we measure it? And how would we know if a computer had feelings? Because what would that mean and what would that look like? And it's just like we talk about all these things in these very human ways, despite the fact that like it's actually probably the wrong way to talk about computers. And also we don't even necessarily like agree on the thing that we're actually talking about. And so you end up in this place where it's like to ask if a computer has feelings is is just like a basically nonsensical question. And it becomes very hard to have any kind of like reasonable conversation about because no one is on the same page about any of this. This weird understanding that we, we keep trying to kind of humanize these devices and they're not human and they don't function like humans and their thought processes are not like humans. They're very, they, they think in binary, right? Like, like they, they think totally, totally different. And we're basically like forcing these alien concepts onto these devices and then being like, oh, wow, it's sentient. That's so cool. It's like, no, it's not. It's in no way sentient. Like it has zero self-awareness. It's just very good at parroting. Well, so the, the main thing that's interesting to me is again, it's Lambda is not the AI. It generated a chatbot that took on the personality of a sentient AI, which is, yeah, you could make it generate a chatbot that takes on the personality of a non-sentient AI. I'm sure there's lots of people in my car screaming that we should be talking about the Turing test. The Turing test, right? Famously, and there's lots of different variations now, but abstractly, it's you talk to a person, you talk to a computer. If you can't tell the computer apart from the person, the computer is successful at being it. That just depends how gullible you are. Like, it's a bad test. That also doesn't mean the computer is sentient. It just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Turing test measures one very specific thing, which is its ability to pass the Turing test. It's like the SATs, right? Like when you take the SATs, it determines how good you are at taking the SATs and nothing else. I was great at taking the SATs. I just want to throw that out there. I yeah. rocked at the SATs. <laughs> but like the extent to which we as like the observers of these things will will go out of our way to read meaning into text is just insane. And it's like, that's why I think the Turing test is like less and less useful because as long as it's good enough, like we'll do the rest of the work to make it human. And we will just like imbue this text with meaning and reality that doesn't exist in a way that like, uh, the other thing that's been floating around for the last couple of weeks is, is Dolly, this like image generating AI, which is wonderful and fascinating. And is the exact opposite, right? Like you look at these images and you can instantly tell they're being computer generated because even the ones that are amazing, they have these like slight things that are wrong. And we have this like incredible visual ability to just spot something that feels wrong, even in a thing that is like incredibly cleverly well put together. And we do the exact opposite with text where it's like, you, you look at it and it's like, Oh, this strangeness of the grammar must be deliberate. That must mean it's <laughs> It's like, no, it's just the, the computer's bad at writing. Like that's not. Yeah. And, and I think we just, we give these things such benefit of the doubt on all these things. And it's like, it, it, what we've learned is that these large language models make them pretty good at communicating reasonably effectively. And like we as the recipient will do so much work to get it the rest of the way. Well, and I thought it was interesting that a lot of the AI researchers are upset with this and they're not upset with it because like this guy thinks this, they're like, all right, that's your opinion. It's a bad one, but it's yours. <laughs> that's your opinion, man. But it's stupid, but they're really upset because <laughs> they feel it's a, it's a major derailing from the actual ethical concerns about the development of these things, right? Like, like this guy's saying, oh, we've got to be concerned about like, are we creating sentient creatures and then trapping them in computers? And they're like, no, we're not. We're so far away from that ever happening 
that like we don't even have to have those concerns right now. We need to be concerned about like, are we using really bad text to train these models and making them like perpetuating violence? What was the Microsoft one that was just like immediately racist? Tay. Tay just popped Tay. out and was immediately like bleep. <laughs> lots and lots of bleeps. And the same with that that bot the other day, relatively recently, the guy went and trained a bot on like 4chan. And then it immediately was like, I'm going to say all the bad things from 4chan. And it was like, well, is that ethical to create that bot and release it into the world? Like, that's a real ethics question that like has like actual real world implications today. Whereas is the robot sentient? No, it's it's <laughs> just so far away from that. We are we are decades from sentient robots. I'm sorry to everybody who really wants them. I do, too. There's a sentient robot that's, like, on their way to your house right now, being like, I gotta find Kranz. If I get murdered, it's because the (laughs) robots have gained sentience. Get some EMPs. I feel like there's a Terminator Genesis joke that we need to make right (laughs) at this moment that I can't quite put together. Like, the last hour of our lives (laughs) is leading up to one Terminator Genesis joke, and I can't get there. Please tweet at us if you know what it is. Please. All right, go read Natasha's piece in the post. We've got some coverage. Uh, Casey did a good write-up in Platformer. There's a lot out there. It's just, this is probably like the news that I think Natasha's piece came out in the post on like Sunday night. And it has just been a news, like everyone knows the answer, which is the thing is not sentient, but then all the questions are fascinating. And I think Natasha did a great job in her piece. All right, we're going to get off the sentient AIs. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about, well, David's going to talk about soccer streaming and Apple TVs. That's that's my read on this. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, we're back. Lots of sports streaming news this week. Can I, I'm just going to point this out. It's the NBA Finals right now. David's a huge Warriors fan. He's like losing his mind. Have you noticed the finals are not in 4K? It's 2022. Oh, it's, it's, it's awful. It's not in 4K. They can't keep it streaming at any kind of high definition. I switch between like three different apps every time I want to watch a game. It's not good times. I, I don't. <laughs> sports is bad. And so is television is my takeaway from the NBA Finals. But Steph Curry is great. So it's fine. Why is a video game of sports higher definition than the actual sports. We have European listeners right now who are like, the Premier League is in 4K every, since like 1985. It's just the United States that's broken. Most sporting events will have like spots where they'll do it. And they all get very proud of themselves every time anything is in 4K. And it's in 4K from like one <laughs> camera in the corner of the end zone for one 
drive of the whole season. And they're like, look what we can do. And it's like, well, what if you did that all the time? Like, <laughs> it's no. too expensive. Well, so the finals, I will say the finals are presented by YouTube TV, which is very like funny. Also, the, can I tell you my favorite part of the finals? Besides the fact yeah. that it's been a great series. They have all sponsorships, right? Yeah. Like sports. So there's a Coinbase logo on the base of all the hoops. And like, I don't know if you paid attention to crypto right now. I bet Coinbase is like, well, that money wasn't well spent. <laughs> the hoops are just going to start slowly tipping over over the course of the next two games. And so I look at the Coinbase logo all the time. And then I, I don't know if anybody has noticed this. That Coinbase is horizontally in the base. But then vertically up the side of the hoop, it just says NBA app in like white letters. <laughs> and it's like, did, did that work for one person? Has one person been like... I wonder if the NBA has an app and they see it like on the hoop. It's not a logo. It's not designed. It's just the words NBA app. <laughs> and I just like, did that convert one person into downloading the NBA? It's efficient advertising. <laughs> it's very good. But there's still like sports streaming news, David. Yes. So the fun time that we're in right now is that like almost every sports league, not every, but many sports leagues have their TV rights coming up. Uh, oh, sometime in the next couple of years, including the NFL, which is like the crown jewel of the television industry. But what happened this week was that Apple signed a deal with Major League Soccer for, I think, 10 years. And it's like a minimum of $250 million a year to basically be like the exclusive place for all things MLS. The details of it are insane and complicated, and I'm happy to sort through them if you'd like to. But basically, this is like the fullest streaming sports anyone has ever done ever. The the MLS had rigged it so that all of its TV deals were going to come up at the end of this season, deliberately wanting to do something like this to like go all in with one provider. So it had there will be no blackout dates. There will be some games on TV, there will be some games for all Apple TV Plus subscribers, there will be some games just for the MLS subscribers. Like I said this is a giant mess and actually it doesn't make any sense because everything is called Apple TV and I still can't figure out any of it. But the idea is that like it is going to be the most thorough complete sports streaming spot that like we've really ever had in the u.s and for that reason alone i think it's super interesting and i'm very excited to see how it turns out isn't the mls like one of the least watched of the american sports like if you're a soccer fan are you watching mls it's pronounced football (laughs) exactly i can answer that question very easily which is to say what nbc paid for the premier league in the U.S., which is a, a foreign yeah. league that plays at like five o'clock in the morning, was like double what Apple paid for the entirety of the MLS. The MLS. So the MLS is weird in the sense that it's like it's a very successful in-person thing. Like they built a lot of like small stadiums and they expanded really fast and they do a lot of really good like actual ticketing business. But it hasn't been a huge TV business so far. Like what Apple paid for MLS is, I think, well over double the TV revenue that the MLS was getting before. So this is like, it's a big bet for everybody on this thing growing really fast. And it has been growing, but it is definitely like, it's in fourth out of four among like the major US sports, or I guess fifth out of five, if you include hockey. You will note they did not say they're going to broadcast anything in 4K. Like I'm like reading all the coverage of this and it's like Apple, which can definitely afford it. Is everyone just waiting on like ATSC 3.0 to become a thing and actually roll out? So that that's the that's the excuse you get from the broadcasters. Right. So like every year during NFL season, you know, NBC and Fox and whoever else will like announce like here's our slate of games in 4K. Fox is like way ahead of everybody else. But even Fox actually only broadcasts in 1080p that they upscale the 4K. Right. 
which is just heartbreaking. Like they have 4K cameras in the sidelines. They create a 1080p production and they upscale to 4K. Oof. It's like the most heartbreaking thing. Like the big innovation in football broadcasting and all sports broadcasting was they started using Sony mirrorless cameras on the sidelines and getting great bokeh. <laughs> and ever like the sports media, God bless them, were like, check out Fox 8K camera. It's like, no, dude, that's a Sony A7R4. Like, I can see it. So I don't know what's going on there. But the reason they make the 1080p production is because of their broadcast affiliates. Right. So my local CBS here, CBS is 1080i. It actually looks better than Fox, which broadcasts at 720p. But my local CBS here, I bought an antenna. This is like where I'm at yeah. with this because it's so frustrating. I've got it. I use an antenna. They've crammed so many extra channels onto their slice of spectrum. Yeah. But they actually still broadcast at 720p because <laughs> they need to make money. So they just created more channels to put more ads on. It's horrible. So that's their excuse is the broadcast networks haven't upgraded to it. They can't quite do it. Because they're waiting on ATSC 3.0, which is going to have 4K and HDR and all the goodies one day. Yeah. And if you like pay attention to that side of CES this past year, there was a ton of ATSC news. Right. ATSC is the standard for broadcasting. So like it's all happening slowly, but the affiliates don't have the money to do it. No one's watching them anyway. Right. And then we're all switching to like streaming services. So like, I just like Neil Mohan, the chief product officer of YouTube was on the verge. And I was like, why don't you just like pay like your Google to like spend some of your Google bucks on upgrading to the 4k cameras and transmission equipment and just like take the exclusive. And he was like, that's a good idea. And now they're sponsoring the finals and it's still like, not that. And I just, there's some trap right between the broadcast, like the, the networks don't want to piss off the broadcast affiliates. It's all very expensive. They don't think consumers care about it, which is I think wrong. That's enough. If you're Apple and you just took over the whole MLS, this is like an easy win for you. Yeah. You're going to do it. You're, you're going to do it. So I hope they do it. I hope they, um, they're Amazon and Apple are both in the running for Sunday ticket for the NFL. That's another super easy win for them, mm-hmm. but we'll we'll just see. I will say that the this is all very complicated in a like it's not as easy as just like put new cameras in. I think uh, and and magic will happen. But part of it is like the one interesting thing about this deal is the MLS is doing all of the production. Like Apple is not really inserting itself into the process as much as I maybe would have expected, and hopefully it inserts itself less and less over time. As anyone who's watched. Apple's foray into baseball and not been super enthusiastic about it. That just everything, everything looks like an iPhone widget. It is very strange that they use their own UI for like the, the score box oh, really? and stuff. Like I want to click on my TV so bad. Yeah. And they always have like nonsensical probabilities in the bottom right corner where they're like run probability. And it's like, he just got up to that. Like <laughs> let's, let's pump the brakes here, Apple. But it's just like, I think Apple is in a lot of ways, I think still trying to figure out whether it wants to be like a sports network or if it just wants to be the streaming service on which the sports networks do things. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this sorts out. But I will say I would be very disappointed if Apple didn't do this stuff in 4K because it controls enough of the process that it kind of has no excuse not to. Well, I wonder if there's like a hesitancy from streamers too, because, you know, 4K that we get from like Netflix and stuff is so much garbage compared to true 4K, right? Like they scale it down, the the bit rate they serve it at and everything else makes it only a couple of steps above 1080p. And I wonder if they're like, well, if we do 4K, it's not really going to look that different for a big chunk of our audience. It's going to look the same. So why even bother? Yeah. And live 4K is way harder than like Netflix has the benefit of like 
presumably it gets Stranger Things well before it airs, you know? But like, if you look at a UHD Blu-ray and you look at the Netflix version of the exact same content, huge, huge difference. Like one looks like absolute garbage and the other one looks like UHD 4K Blu-ray. So we'll see. Like, we're going to see what happens with sports. I will say Apple has an opportunity here. Sunday Ticket is a huge opportunity. Yeah. But it's just it, the state of sports streaming in America right now is so far behind everywhere else. Like, we're talking about the Olympics. NTT Docomo in Japan was doing their first test of straight 8K, 8K broadcast of the Olympics. And we were like 1080p. It's brutal. Even absent the actual, like, streaming quality thing the like like i'm an arsenal fan that's the the football team that i like and they have some games that are on nbc sports they have some games that are on nbc they have some games that are on peacock they have some games that aren't on tv at all and every every morning i wake up at like the ass crack of dawn to watch english soccer and it could be in one of 11 places or not on tv at all and this is like not how this is supposed to work but like everybody keeps telling me over the last couple of years that this is the transition period right and i think all the rights deals are coming up it is just true that these tech companies have more money than anybody else and if they want to essentially take this stuff over they can afford to do so and apple was just i think the first one and it was smart to pick a relatively small one MLS doesn't have a ton to lose here in a way that like the NFL has a lot to lose by making a bad streaming deal. It's going to be fascinating. Do you think the NFL is ever considering their own OTT like app? I mean, they've got one. They've got like the garbage NFL app that my brother called and ranted. NBA app. <laughs> <laughs> the NFL is streaming on the NBA app. It's going to be yes! incredible. No, the NFL wants to sell stuff. That, that's their money. That's yeah. where it comes from. And that's why they sell it to 40,000 different companies they sell like at a very high rate that you can think of as the wholesale rate right but it's still a huge number they sell it to multiple parties yeah and then you know fox and cbs and whoever else like layer advertising and subscriptions and also fantasy football gambling like the nfl is not in the position to make all of those dollars the way that the broadcast partners can so in the broadcast like that live sports especially the nfl is like the last thing keeping people on their cable subscriptions so like they they know it like taking I, i don't think they'll ever go direct I want them to. And the NFL is milking that fact for absolutely all it is worth. I mean, the NBA deal is coming up soon and there's rumors that it's going to be like monstrous. There's like there there are at least a couple more runs at this before. Like if we get to a point where everyone has left, then like does does the NFL start selling to Netflix over time? Like maybe. But I tend to think you're right. I have a really hard time imagining the NFL trying to do its own thing. There's a rumor that um, Netflix wants in on the F1 because of Drive to Survive. Yeah. Which would be their first push in the live sports, which they might need to keep subscribers. Disclosure, we have a Netflix show. See, I just, I, that's all right. <laughs> all right, we got to do a lightning round. Lots of stuff here. So let's start with Microsoft. Uh, if you're running Windows, go install that June update right now. There's a big security bug at patches. More importantly, though, Internet Explorer, and this is a great Tom Warren headline, Internet Explorer, star of Windows, dies at 26. Aw. It's finally over. RIP. Should we, should we take a moment of silence for Internet Explorer? Uh, no, because it was horrible. <laughs> uh, Microsoft is now automatically redirecting Internet Explorers to Edge. There's like half a percent of the world population, I think, was still using Explorer. Was that the number? Is it that high? Yes. Yeah, this, dude, this thing just like would not die. Like They have killed it 10 times. And so they've, they've done all these aggressive moves to get you to edge, which is funny because like the next thing we're talking about is like the tech antitrust bills are like basically the one yard line in Congress. Like they just need to get scheduled for a vote and then they'll pass. And all of this started with Windows and IE and Microsoft's out of it now. Like they've 
very deftly avoided antitrust scrutiny, even though they're forcing everyone onto edge and they're killing IE. Tom's write-up of the Internet Explorer thing is very funny. Speaking of the tech and antitrust bills, as I said, they're on the one-yard line. We've got a great piece about that by Russell. John Oliver just did a great segment about them, which is really fun to watch. The lobbying pressure from big tech, Google, Amazon, et cetera, really ramped up. That's how you know things are close. We'll see if it happens. If it happens, a lot of things will change. We'll cover it in depth at the one-yard line. Uh, Nothing, the phone company, nothing, the phone, these names are so bad. So the phone company is called Nothing. Nothing, the phone company. The phone is called the Phone One. So the Nothing Phone One leaked a little bit early. It's cool. It does It does look a little bit like the 12, but it's like see-through back. The shielding is all white, which is cool. It's cool. There's a parrot on top of it for some reason. If you get the parrot with the phone, I'm immediately in. You know, it's an Android phone. We we know nothing about the software except the launcher they released, which is just a bog-standard Android launcher, really. Sonos voice control arrived in the midst of just the wackiest Sonos controversy <laughs> of all time. They're shipping tons and tons of extra devices to people who order. Like, if you buy one Sonos One, like, some dude got, like, 15 of them, and then they charged him for all of them. He's, like, it got $15,000 on his credit card. He's got to, like, like just box, like, just stacks and stacks of... <laughs> it's a great picture. Sonos having their own ordering problems, but they released their voice control, which is... They bought this company called Snips, and now they have their own voice system because, you know, they're constantly having challenges with relationships with Google, which they're still suing. They're a little friendlier with Alexa... But now they've got their own. It's fast. It's on device. You can tell it to group rooms, which is cool because you can't, Alexa and Google Assistant can't, like, you can't be like, play this in the living room too. And like, now the Sonos one can. Doesn't support Spotify. Spotify will come around. Yeah. Spotify is like the, it's like the Netflix of this space where it, it never wants to be the first one in, but it eventually kind of gives up and is part of things over time. But it is, it is a real bummer. Like, I looked at this and I was like, okay, I'm going to buy. I'm going to buy some, some more Sonos stuff. And like, I have, I have two Sonos ones behind me that are not hooked up. And I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. Let's make this happen. And then it said, no Spotify. I was like, well, I don't have Deezer. So this isn't going to work for me. <laughs> we'll see. By the way, we did agree. I was talking about agree to continue earlier. Starlink, the stuff Sonos collects is bonkers. It's all under additional usage data. You should just read the list, but it's like, it collects how hard, how long you're using it. It collects the temperature of the product. Are you using your air conditioner enough? Sonos knows. <laughs> uh, your Wi-Fi signal. Like all of it is like basic telemetry. It's just, it's kind of a lot. You know, my record player doesn't collect any data from me. One more Microsoft thing. Microsoft Teams now has AI that improves interruptions, which is hilarious, but important. It's such an unbelievably good idea. I mean, it's like the the main reason I yell at people to wear headphones when I'm on Zoom calls is that it slightly improves the crosstalk thing. Because if your computer is trying to output sound and receive sound and echo cancel, yeah. it just breaks. And Microsoft is like, people talk over each other. What if we made that slightly easier? <laughs> and it's like, yes, this is good news. I hope that's the first AI that becomes sentient. The, <laughs> the one that interrupts you? Yeah, just no more talking. Last one, really important. Ford is recalling almost 49,000 Mustang Mach-E's. They've made about 100,000 of them, so it's like half of them, because of the high-voltage battery connectors could overheat. They told dealers to stop selling them while they fix it. They have not said people should stop driving the cars during this time. It's just like a very unclear, like, you shouldn't sell them, but if you've got one, you should keep driving it. Very confusing. Uh, The problem can be fixed with a software update, which will be issued next month. Uh, you can also just go to your Ford dealer and get an immediate fix. So you've got a Maki, go to your Ford dealer and like try to get that fixed right away. But it's just like the Maki has had a bunch of problems since it started. It's very popular. 
second best selling EV in the country. People love them. I see them all over the place now. But it launched with some issues. It had some like glass lamination issues and some subframe bolts. And now it's got a battery issue. It's like the transition to EVs is like tough for these automakers. Are people going to get the notification like over the car? Like you need to go update? Uh, maybe. That would be a useful infotainment feature. Hasn't Tesla had this problem a bunch too, where it's like they, they have a recall and it's like, well, we'll fix it with a software update. And it's like, well, what are people supposed to do in the meantime? And the answer is just like, ah, no one really knows. Just get yeah. your foot off the brake. Way back when, the only thing to do was go get it fixed. Now you, it's just like connect it to fast internet and like hope something good happens. Well, I will say the um, my car has a wiper recall, which is just like wipers, guys. Like we're, we should be great at these. <laughs> like... <laughs> This should be a no-brainer. <laughs> like, so, you know, recalls happen, but I think the, the Mach-E in particular has so just had quite a few in its very short life, lifespan. And F-150 Lightnings are just starting to hit. So Ford's in the transition. You know, the cars are successful. People are excited about them, but transition's a little bumpy. Um, Tesla has had a lot of recalls. Like, have you seen the pictures of the Cybertruck? Speaking of wipers, <laughs> have you seen the picture of the Cybertruck? Um the, like the panel gaps in the Cybertruck are all over the place, and that's pre-production. But the panel gaps, like a Model Three, are all over the place. So, I would say the EV world is still still a little rough around the edges. Should we do? We should do a happy one to end it. What do you got? A lot of people are very excited about this WhatsApp update this week. WhatsApp is like relentlessly finally doing things to make it easier to move your stuff between devices. They've like rolled out things where you can use WhatsApp on multiple devices at once, and now they have an actual thing that lets you transfer your chat history from an Android device to an iPhone device, uh, which is a super big deal for people who use WhatsApp a lot. You don't have to leave all your stuff behind just to get a new or just to switch to iPhone. A lot of people I know are like super, super excited that this is a thing that finally exists because there have been crazy hacks people have tried to do really? to make this work forever. And now it just like does. I got to get on the WhatsApp. I've been using Signal a lot more, I'm trying to trying to break my iMessage addiction. But now that iMessage has editable text. You're, you're going back. Gonna go back. Just sending iPhones to everybody who doesn't have one. They got me again. I'm going to just give everybody a hint. This new Vergecast art, if you've been following our text messaging service discussions, you know, there's a little, there's some pixels in there for you. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, uh, let's take a place to end it. We are, as always, we're way over. Uh, future of trailer is up on the site now. That'll be on Netflix next week. Vergecast Rebooted starts next week with the second episode on Wednesdays, hosted by David and a cast of thousands. New art, new theme. It's going to be great. You can tweet at us. We love hearing from you. We got some really nice emails this week. Uh, thank you to everybody who emailed us. But you can tweet at us as well. I'm at Reckless. David is at Pierce. Alex is Alex H. Kranz. That's it. That's our chest. Rock and roll. Thanks for listening to this week's show. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at vergecastattheverge.com. And if you liked the show, share it with a friend. Vergecast is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by me, Liam James, and our senior audio director, Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. That's it. We'll see you next week. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.